pile of scrap. And today, you love that name. I do. It's cracks me. The following is an original audio series from Sierra International Machinery, Pile of Scrap, with your host, John Sacco. We're here today with uh, President and CEO of SA, George Adams. So S stands for Sims, A stands for Adams, and when we first met, it was Adams Steel. Now it's SA Recycling. I I wanted it to be AS Recycling, but AS Recycling didn't work so well, so it had to be SA Recycling. Probably the best move. (laughs) And and who had to convince you of that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us a little bit, George. You know, welcome. Thank you for joining us. You know, you... You've taken your company and you've grown it throughout. You are now one of the, I don't know, are you semi-private? What are you? Because you're half private, half public. No, it's, it's a private company. We just have a public partner. You have a public partner. Okay, so as far as privately held scrap companies goes in America, you're probably the largest. Have uh, you surpassed Alter? I, I don't know. We're, we're probably certainly up there. Um, I think Alter has a lot more money than well, they have gambling boats. All right, so, let's, so tell us a little bit about this essay, how, how this all came together, because it's part of the history before we get into the real back history. So everybody needs to know what is essay, how Sims Adams came together. So Adams Steel was, uh, you know, our family business located in the Southern California area, and we had reached a point where we couldn't grow anymore. Uh, we were running up against without having a dock and it was really difficult to get a dock in Los Angeles and Long Beach there just weren't any available Uh, you know the space was all taken up and so we had the opportunity to do a joint venture with Hugo New and uh, or I'm sorry it's Sims was called Sims Hugo New at the time we had an opportunity to joint venture with them and that gave us access to a dock and uh, so we did a 50-50 joint venture that was in 2007 and that was forming SA Recycling. And really, SA was just supposed to be a placeholder name. We were going to come up with some really cool name, but uh, just just kind of stuck. All we need is two C's and an O, then we have Sacco Recycling, <laughs> yeah, and we're good. Exactly, okay. <laughs> exactly right. All right, exactly. so so George, tell us a little bit about your start in the scrap business and your family, how, how it all started, because I think it's an interesting story. I know it, but I think the people who will listen to this podcast would like to, to know that. Uh, you know, my father uh, had a little scrapyard. Uh, this was in the early 70s, and um, I mean, I was you know, driving truck, and you know, late in high school, and I was working at the yard. Uh, certainly, uh, in the later years, uh, and it's just where I grew up, and so it's really all I've ever done. Uh, I'm an attorney by schooling, but I never practiced law. Um, the you know my first job at the company we had landfills and I picked scrap out of trash. Um, the uh, first one I worked there full time. I had a crew of guys at the landfill and we were. I drove the roll up truck up there every morning and we picked the, the the scrap metal and the recyclables out of the landfill and I brought it back to the yard at the end of the day. Okay, so you were that was 1976. Okay, so you're doing that, but yet you still you end up going to law school. So. There's a progress. What was that? Was that your dad telling you, George, we need an attorney in the family? Or is that you that you wanted to know the law? No, what happened is that uh, as the company was growing, because you figure in 1977, when I started working with the company full time, I was 21. 
And so I didn't go back to law school until I was 24. So the company had grown quite a bit by then. And what was happening is I was talking to my attorneys. I don't know what the hell they were talking about. And so they would say there's no privity of contract or they would say that's a tort. And I just had no idea what they were talking about. And so um, I, uh, I figured out that I could go back to school at night and I could become an attorney. And it took me four years. So I went to work every morning at 6 o'clock in the morning. I got out of work at 6 o'clock at night. Had to be at school by 6.30. Went straight through winter, spring, summer, and uh, fall. Yeah, all four seasons. Went straight through the... And You're in Southern California. There's two seasons. <laughs> summer and spring. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, there's, no, there's no winter. There's no fall. Well, anyway, but straight straight through the year. It took me four years. And uh, so I was not I was never going to take the bar. Because uh, I wasn't going to practice law. So but did you my, take the bar? I did. My classmates called me so many female anatomy words that I and I did you, shamed into taking And you the did bar. pass the bar. I did pass the bar. You have an interesting story about law school, how you had to get through it because you had a habit of falling asleep. Well, you know, so obviously I was working all day. And then uh, by the time I got out of, time I got out of class, it's 1030 at night. And so trying to study... Uh, after you've been work, after you work 12 hours that day, it was always difficult. So I would walk along the riverbed and I'd listen to tapes. Um, uh, back then, they were cassette tapes, and I had a player that would play them at high speed. And so it would play the. It would normal people talk about 200 words a minute, 180 to 200 words a minute. Um, I had a tape player that would play it at 600 words a minute, and so and then had a pitch control, so you would you didn't sound like Mickey Mouse because they were talking really fast. And I would just walk up and down the river with my dog. And as long as I was walking, I wouldn't fall asleep. And so I would just play the tapes over and over and over again for each class. There were the bar review uh, tapes. And that's how I got through law school. That's really quite a fascinating story. Yeah, and you still don't sleep. <laughs> yeah, well, you, maybe in an ISRI meeting or two. But other than that, I don't know you to sleep. So, okay, so now you're, you become a lawyer. You're still in the scrap business. You're growing your scrap business. But in 19, I met you first in 86 or 85. And when I met you, first time, you were in bankruptcy. So it wasn't a bankruptcy yet, okay? So when I first met you, the state of California had shut down my shredder. And so um, the... the, uh, they shut down my shredder and they had put the, they had declared the waste that, California was declared the waste that was hazardous and uh, we had PCBs in a waste and so they declared the waste hazardous and, or had declared the waste hazardous and they stopped my shredder. So that was March of 2000 and, that was March of 19, uh, let's see when the hell was that, 87, yeah March okay. of 87. And, um, and so I came up here with Dave Williams, and your father, your family, you guys gave me a baler, a shear baler, to keep us going. Because well, I first it was run. a 4200. Okay, a baler. That's right, it was yeah. a, because that was the, Dave Williams yeah, on his yeah, watch yeah. calculating how many tons a day you did. Yeah, no, 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 one else, no one else would help me, but uh, you guys gave me a baler, and that, got me, uh, that allowed me to ship my tin because I couldn't run my shredder. And that got me going um, until I could get the permit to get the shredder going again. Okay, so at some point you have to declare bankruptcy, right? So we didn't declare bankruptcy. Okay, you we, never did go officially into bankruptcy. No, no, bankruptcy. no. We, we were forced into bankruptcy. So um, 
um, Richard New in Waukeda, you know, they kind of got together, David Cree, they bought up a couple of my creditors' claims and they filed, or they put up the money to file an involuntary bankruptcy against me. And so, and then they dragged us into court and when we got into court, we lost. So, because when the bank, what, what happened is when the state of California, when the state of California um, shut my shredder down, my bank panicked, Mitsui Bank, and so they seized my line of credit and they bounced all my checks. So they bounced over half a million dollars worth of checks. That was Friday the 13th, March 1987. So they bounced over half a million dollars worth of checks and, um, and so then Richard uh, had one of his uh, law school buddies, an attorney, uh, basically they, they bought three of those creditor claims and with three creditor claims, $27,000 worth of creditor claims, they could uh, they were able to file an involuntary bankruptcy against me. Okay, so now you're in the depths of all this. No financing. Okay, we gave you, my dad, you know, convinced my brother and I, okay, it's a good idea to give George a bailer. He has the tonnage. At any point during all this, did you think you're going to give up and this is no longer for you? Or it's just it, the chip grew bigger on your shoulder? What happened during this? Because it's a personal thing at this point for you? You know, it's, it's not even so much a question of, of the chip growing bigger as, or even <clears throat> thinking about quitting. In the first place, uh, you know, growing up, of all the things my father taught me, it's uh, that you just don't quit. You know, it, my father pounded in my head since I was little that no matter how many times you got knocked down, you got back up again. And he always said it, and he would tell me over and over again, if you always get back up, then you can't be beat. He says, you're never beat until you don't get back up. And so it was never really a question about quitting, just because it's just not in my makeup. Um, and, uh, the, and I was confident I could beat this. It was, um, I just, I knew I could beat it. Well, okay, not only did you beat it, to look back from 1987 to 2019, you're ginormous in the respect of where you were and how you came. Tell us, and you did, you've done a lot of this through acquisition. Tell us about your first acquisition. When you've made your first, so, you were going to go buy your first scrapyard. You're coming out of all this stuff. Now you're going. Now you're going to grow. But it, it, but it didn't really happen that way. What What happened was, what happened is that the when we finally, you know. We sued Hugo New. Um, we finally settled that lawsuit. We were finally able able to get the company out of bankruptcy. Um, settled with the bank. Settled with um, um, the state on you know on a cleanup plan for the waste. And so that's 1990 or 1991 thereabouts. And so we're flat broke. Had a five million dollar liability and a hazardous waste pile that we had to get rid of. The city of Anaheim had taken away our business license and our use permit, and that's the situation we were in. But you know, we had the right to operate for five years to clean up the pile, and in that five years, we were um, we got our use permits back, we got our business license back, and you know, we shipped the waste out. And so, but what happened is because we were able to settle those environmental problems, then people started coming to us with their environmental problems. And so um, when 
the yard down in El Centro. Um, can't think what the hell the family's name was, but anyway, the family that owned that yard down there, the owner had passed away. Well, the family had the yard, but had all kinds of environmental problems. And so when we when um, we started talking to them, then they were satisfied that we could clean the problem up because we had cleaned our problem up. When Bob Luan uh, was handling the bankruptcy for Hayuka, through and and Mitsui had bought all the assets, but wouldn't take place in Bakersfield here, wouldn't take uh, Mid-City, wouldn't take a couple places because of all their environmental problems. Bob Luan came to me and said, do you want to buy these places? Because he trusted me to be able to clean up the environmental problems. And so really, through all the problems of our environmental problems, then you know we started buying companies that had environmental issues because we knew what to do. And, and I wasn't afraid of them. And so when you've been through what we've been through, you know, environmental problems just didn't scare me. And so <clears throat> we started buying those, and then really we started buying companies that had debt problems and solvency problems, because I'd been through it all. So, so you understood, so you educated yeah. yourself through your issues that you had. That became a, own, its own form of a master's degree, a doctorate, and how to get yourself out of these things, and uh, that created think. opportunity. Cer certainly, uh, I would have rather skipped that education, but but, uh, but certainly it it allowed me. It certainly taught us, you know, what to do in environmental problems and how to buy companies or how to handle, you know, companies that were in trouble. You know, we'll get to environmental because the environmental issues of twenty years ago and what we're facing today is is different. We'll get to that point. Let, let's let's look at SA today. How many employees does the SA Recycling Company have now? Uh, I think we're twenty seven hundred. That's a lot of employees. Okay, and how many facilities are you running now? 77, I think, soon to be 78. Soon to be 78. I got to hand it to you, George. That's a lot of growth in a really short period of time. So tell me about what is the crown jewel of all the SA yards? What's the crown jewel? I mean, still our dock, you know, Terminal Island is still probably our, you know, our, our, the yard most people like to come see just because loading ships and, and that kind of stuff. But my yard in Long Beach is really nice and uh, have beautiful facilities in Georgia. I mean, I have a lot of really, every state has, you know, one or two really nice facilities. We figure we're in 10 states and so um, each one has its own charm. But of all of them, you know, the one in Termalines. Well, you have this, this electric crane. That's the one in Termalines. Right. Tell us a little bit about that because I think it's when people see it, it's hard to really truly understand the size of it and, and its capacity and what it can I, do. I mean, look, it's a Liberia 550. It's uh, I think it's the nicest scrap loading crane in the country. Um, although I think Sims is going to buy 600, so maybe they'll beat me. But theirs is not here yet, so right now mine's still nice. But uh, but the uh, I think it's the nicest scrap loading crane in the country. It's uh, it's just badass. I mean, that's all I can say. It's badass. The guy sits. Uh, How many feet guy, up off the ground is that guy? He's uh, he's about ninety. He's thirty three meters, I think. So well, like a hundred feet. Um, is there an elevator in that thing? Or no, no, you got no so elevator. so the There's job description for that is you got to be a physical. Yeah, the guy's got to yeah, be in great you, shape you to be climb able to get up there. But he's so high up, he can see down in the holds of the ship. It's all computer controlled. So when he swings, like if the if the pan is sitting here, when he swings to the to the ship to dump the pan, he pushes the button, it goes back to where it was. He pushes the button, it goes back to there until you got to move it. It's really badass. Do you ever operate it? What's that? You know, you're, you're, 
One thing people need to know about you, you're in your scrapyards. Every day. Wearing your hard hat, working the equipment. How often do you run that crane? So I've never actually loaded the crane. I mean, I've swung it and moved it and that kind of stuff. Okay, but, but you actually yeah. haven't loaded a ship yet. Because the uh, there's a lot of longshore issues with me doing that. Oh, that's right. It's union. Yeah, exactly. You're not a union guy. Oh, well, all right. We won't we won't touch that. We won't broach that. You haven't done it. <laughs> so you haven't broken any regulations. So with your company of yourself, what's your capex budget on an average? Uh, you know, I mean, look, it depends on the year. Uh, you know, I mean, if obviously if business is really bad, it's going to be less. But this year will be sixty-five million bucks, seventy, not counting acquisitions. It's a lot of money. Look, you have state-of-the-art facilities. You're heavy into automation. Is that your downstreams? Where, where's the money? Where did the money go this year? When you approved your budget, what kind of investments in equipment were you making into your facilities? I mean, look, certainly we put a lot of money in the downstreams. You know, what's, that, what's happened with China? We've had to change a lot of different stuff. Um, wash lines, twitch, sensors. Uh, you know, there's a lot of bunch of stuff I've had to do because of the change of regulations in China. But then we're uh, concrete, environmental, you know, doing different stuff. Uh, new tractors, tier four engines, you know, stuff that has to be replaced, uh, whether it's trucks or tractors. Um, that's really an endless yeah we we this last year we we spent money and having to get to the tier four levels from our trucks our rolling yeah. stock yeah. and even for our excavators yeah. that we use for our demo site at sierra recycling demolition we had to make that that investment out. so let, let's let's talk a little bit about let's go to environmental because it kind of segues you you know it's part of your capex budget today in california the environmental issues that the, the DTSC is trying, or they're claiming ASR auto shredder, auto shredder residue as hazardous material. What other, and stormwater, but you know, you got yards from California all through the South into Georgia. Is California your biggest nightmare for the environmental issues as far as the regulatory burden, or is it caught up everywhere else? There's more problems in California than all the states put together. And uh, by 10 or so. Um, <clears throat> California is, uh, you know, tries to do everything it can to put you out of business. Other states try to encourage your business, want your business, like your business. Um, you know, the California comes in your yard looking to do everything they can to, to, do it, to get a got you and to find you. Other states don't. So. Well, we're... Here at Sierra, okay, we're in Bakersfield. We're, we're basically a desert. We get 5.8 inches of rain a year. And here at Sierra, we're going to spend $575,000 on, on new stormwater technology that nothing even leaves our parking lot. And it drives me crazy. Rainwater that drops on our parking lot that doesn't touch scrap has to be sampled. Yet the DMV, Lowe's, Home Depot, and every other major business in the state of California that has a parking lot doesn't have to test their water. Well, okay. there's certainly uh, there's certainly nothing fair about uh, the DTSC and their, the way they regulate scrapyards. You figure in all other states, the recycling business is looked at as a green business and helping the environment. In California, we are polluters and uh, they wish we weren't here. So unless you're an aluminum can or a newspaper recycler, then they think that's okay. But other than that, 
they don't want you. Well, what's the biggest regulation change coming down the pike that, that scares you the most in the state of California? Well, or wherever that may be. I mean, I'm looking. They're trying to regulate shredder waste. They're trying to make our facilities hazardous waste that have, um, you know, with shredders. And so, I mean, for us, that's the third rail. I mean, we'll fight it to the death because we can't. We just can't do that. So. We need automobile shredders because what are we going to do with the automobiles? Exactly. But, you know, state of California, uh, as far as they're concerned, if they went to China or they went out of state, they'd be fine with that. All the China's not taking our scrap. Well... Uh, that's this is recent though, but in the past they were fine with it going anywhere but being recycled in California. So, I mean, the head of the Cal EPA told me as much in my office at Terminal Endo. So, you know, he basically told me that the guys that were working there would get other jobs and that, uh, you know, we didn't need that type of industry in California. A state that wants to be green wants to axe the biggest green, the, the, the largest tonnage. Of recyclables, but but they, they don't. It's they, crazy. They they don't look at it that way. I mean, it's just it's a it's a different thought process. So, you know, they look at car shredding as being an illegal hazardous business, which needs to be regulated to the max. And it's the only place in the world that it's done that way. Because you understand, what happens is that California in 1983, which is how started the whole my all my environmental problems, changed the standard from acetic acid to citric acid. So if you think about it, if you take and throw trash in a landfill, the reason it decomposes is because it's in an anaerobic environment and it forms a mild form of acetic acid and that breaks down the carbon chains, right? So when you're gonna test for heavy metals, you put those, that waste, in a concentrated form of acetic acid, a little stronger than what you find in the landfill and you see if anything will come out. And so, uh, and that's how it's done all over the world and in every state in the country except for California. And the reason no other country and no other state, because normally other states follow California, but since 1983, no one has, because it's stupid. Why would you use anything other than, citric, other than acetic acid? California uses citric acid. You don't find citric acid in a landfill. So why use citric acid to test for heavy metals? But that's what California uses, even so, you're never gonna find it in a landfill. It's absolutely ridiculous to test for cit use citric acid, but that's what they use. There's two soluble leads in nature, lead nitrate and lead citrate. If this plastic bottle was made out of lead and I had water in it and I drank it as long as I don't scrape my teeth on it, I can drink water out of this lead bottle. It's not gonna hurt me because lead is not soluble in water. But if I start pouring orange juice in here, I'm gonna die because Lead citrate is a sol is soluble. And so it'll go into the bottom. There seems to be a look. Sierra, we're we're under the same. We don't have auto shredders like you do, but we we still have to fight all the the craziness. But common sense regulation. There's no common sense in it anymore, especially in our industry. And everybody wants to be green, but nobody seems to understand what the investment it takes. To, be, to keep this stuff from landfills. You can't have cars all over the street. That is gonna pollute this state at a far greater level than a controlled environment, which your yards are controlled environments. No question. Well, you know, let's, let's well, we did get a victory. When we sued, this, who did we sue? Cal Recycle. Cal Recycle because they were trying to make us report our 
tonnages so that they could say that it was waste diversion. So we won that one. We'll win this hazardous waste one too. You're an optimist, aren't you? I'm a realist, okay? People think I'm a pessimist because realist and optimist are so close. And you know, realist and pessimist are real close, but the optimist, he's at a different level. You know, my glass is always overflowing. So. Over, it's not half anything. See, I look at a glass, it's half. It's not half empty, it's not half, it's half. But you know, that, that's neither here nor there. This has been a Sierra International Machinery original audio series. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast and make sure to subscribe.